Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today I'm joined by John Fabrizius, and John and I are going to be discussing his role at Real Salt Lake and all of the data and analytics that he processes on high-level soccer players and what that means and how you can apply it to anyone from middle school, high school soccer player to college soccer player to professional players. We also talk about a number of other factors attributed to performance, such as neurotransmitters. This is a great episode, and I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. John, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So for people who might not be familiar with you, or maybe they don't know your backstory, or, you know, maybe they've never seen the MLS or heard of like Real Salt Lake. Um, you know, I feel like everyone's heard of that by now, but would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the last, so I guess just the last past year, um, I started working at Real Salt Lake. So uh, with Real Salt Lake, I am a performance coach for um, the Real Monarchs. Um, I'm also kind of our data scientist, uh, looking through a lot of our performance testing, a lot of our catapult GPS um, testing stuff uh, from a neurotransmitter uh, perspective as well. And um, I just kind of been uh, working with them um, for the past year. Before that, I was with um, the University of Tennessee. Uh, I was there for about five years. So um, for two years, I worked, you know, with football um, while I was in my uh, GA um, coaching assistantship there. Um, was also working simultaneously with the Olympic sports side. Um, and after about two years there, I moved on full time as an assistant director of Olympic sports performance. Um, and I worked primarily with uh, soccer, women's soccer there, as well as golf and uh, tennis. So um, I've had about five years there. Prior to that, um, I was at Dakota Wesleyan University in a small NAI school in South Dakota. Um, and that's kind of really where I got my start and my interest into strength conditioning, uh, sports performance and, and things of that line. How did you get into the soccer background? Because, you know, as you were talking, you didn't mention that you grew up playing soccer or anything like that, John. Yeah, so I actually started with football. <laughs> so I played uh, football at Dakota Wesleyan and then. Um, I did play a little bit of soccer in high school. I never had a true skill for it, though. Um, I was more of just kind of the, the brute force kind of guy. Um, and that, that led me a little bit closer to football um, in general. Uh, I, I actually, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if you if I had ever seen um, or had ever thought about going into the realm or sport of soccer, I would have said you're absolutely crazy. But when I was at Tennessee, I got really involved with uh, GPS tracking really early on. And that exposure kind of led me to soccer in general with the University of Tennessee, um, working with our head coach there, Brian Penske at the time. Uh, we had a really good working relationship um, and he had an awesome kind of desire to understand a little bit more about you know, GPS, um, I guess, performance periodization. And uh, so our relationship kind of budded from that. And then we just kind of took off from there. So at that point, I really got interested into um, the soccer side of things just because of how much influence you can have from a sports science 
data perspective uh, while still having the ability to um, kind of dictate what they're doing um, in the weight room as well and being able to kind of bridge that gap together um, and find a perfect balance and blend between sports science, sport performance, and skill uh, was a really awesome opportunity. And then that led me to coming out to here to Real Salt Lake, um, working for a great guy in Ryan Cotter, um, who's been all over the place as well, and learning a ton from him um, and, and the things that he's doing as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, you me you mentioned the term sports science a number of times here, and that seems to be one of the, I'll call it like a buzzword lately, like a lot of people are calling themselves a sports scientist. Uh, so for people who might have heard the term, but don't fully understand, like the data analytics and things you're looking at on the day to day basis, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about, you know, what all you're assessing and what all of that means in general on the day to day? And you know, I know there's a lot. So if you just want to scratch the surface, that's fine with me. Yeah, absolutely. So just as a broad sense of things, <laughs> defining kind of the role of a sports scientist, I think is really important um, for people to understand. And it's really just managing data outputs to create a valid decision in a timely manner to positively influence the performance of an athlete. Um, and so having that understanding is, is really under really important. Um, and, and the things that a sports science um, or sports science uh, specialist may do is working, you know, with technology, working with um, through data management and then having interpersonal, intrapersonal and um, really high level of learning skills. Um, and so at RSL, kind of what <clears throat> I like to do um, is I was I like to start with profiling and managing the athlete. So it's really important to understand that data isn't the big picture the athlete is the big picture um, everybody is different and the environment that they're placed in shapes and dictates their reaction to um, exactly what they're doing um, so profiling that athlete is is our first and primary goal um, and then benchmarking you know we'll go through physical benchmarking whether that's on force plates whether that's um, through like uh, our metabolic testing our um fitness testing. Uh, we'll look at a psychological benchmark. So just kind of getting an understanding of where they are mentally and what is their baseline um, on a day-to-day -day level. Um, we'll look at technical and tactical and learning um, benchmarks as well. Um, and then from there, that's where we can kind of produce a little bit more mon monitoring from um, those benchmarks. So at RSL, we're lucky enough and very privileged to have just about everything at our disposal with, you know, GPS. We work with Catapult. Um, we have our force plate technology with Vault. And um, I really like we have we're starting on a, kind of a new kind of realm of things of our of running signature. Um, that's been really cool that we're hoping to get implemented through Catapult as well. But from the, from that aspect, I also look at. Um, kind of movement. Um, and I've been working with the Gray, Insti Gray Institute for several years now, and um, kind of having an individual movement profile as well for these athletes um, definitely still is encompassed, I believe, in a sports science realm. Um, and being able to just kind of understand and purely develop a performance periodization for every athlete based on um, exactly what they need. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I love that you bring that up. And I love how you brought up the Gray Institute as well. 
Um, we literally just had this conversation with uh, Eric Degatti, um, you know, on the podcast recently. We we're talking about the importance of movement assessment uh, on the daily uh, yes. for everyone. I don't care if you're a physical therapist or an AT or a strength coach or whatever, um, but he kind of walked through. He has a 60 second quick screen for movement that he yep. does at the start of every session. And yep. he said, you know, most of the time you notice nothing. Yeah. But there might be one or two days where you notice, like, all of a sudden that squat does not look so pretty. Um, right. you know, maybe it was a really, you know, long road trip for an away game and someone was sitting down for a long time and now they're showing up at the gym and they're just a little bit tight. Or maybe start yeah. something's starting to bother them. Something started to hurt, hurt them a little bit. But if you're not assessing that, you're not going to pick up on those things. And I think that's really where the data side of things becomes cool, both objectively and subjectively with what you're seeing on a movement side like that is you're starting to notice some trends and pick up on things before they even happen for the most part. You know, you might tell someone something and they not even recognize it or realize it themselves. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's the biggest thing, because I, I always go back to managing the athlete. Um, there's just there's so many different things that you can look at and, and kind of dissect within the athlete themselves. And, and even in the sport itself as well, like even outside of like a soccer realm of things, you still have to digest and understand and break down the, the physical and tactical and technical components of skill and the sport that they are in. And, you know, just taking a broad sense of things, there are so many things that you can look at, you know, there's, there's the training age of the athlete, there's the role that they have on the team, there's their injury history, um, understanding kind of their motivation factors to their personal experiences and why they are, you know, performing to the sport that they are, um, anatomical traits that they have, um, their physiolo physiology um, and their qualities there. Um, there's just so much that goes into, you know, managing that athlete. And there's so many different factors, external, internal, that, that really play a massive role in, in the way that they are performing. And it's, it's not just that, you know, X, that GPS data that we're looking at. It's not, it's not just the, you know, the counter movement jumps or RSI stuff or force plate um, isometric testing, any of that. Like it's a, it's a full picture as how can we kind of dissect and find this puzzle and piece all of that stuff together. And it's, it's really, really important. I believe a lot of times people miss the human element of it, especially in data science and sports science. It's like, Oh, it's so cool to like think and break down and digest all of these numbers and, and be able to visualize it for somebody. But at the end of the day, they're still human beings and, and data can't account for the human being. And so being able to understand that um, and put the human first, the athlete first is, is massive. Yeah, no, John, I completely agree on your, you know, emphasis on the human element, because I'm sure it's very easy to get lost in the data, the numbers, the fancy charts and all the trends that you see, you know, when you're sitting on the other side of a laptop screen, but you almost forget sometimes like, hey, this is a person. And, uh, you know, I think it's possible to get too caught up in the technology side of things as well. And, you know, you focus too much on what the numbers show you when you miss what the athlete is showing you in person, you know, their numbers might be a little bit poor, I'll say, but they could probably do some amazing physical things. And, you know, they wouldn't get to the level that you're at if they couldn't do some incredible physical feats. So, um, you know, sometimes there's, there could be a mismatch 
um, between data and what you see. And, you know, I say that holds up more in the form and function debate than anything. You know, you yeah. see guys with terrible bunions or weird foot postures, or whatever that way, and yet they can still dunk a basketball. It just doesn't right. make sense, but they do it. Um, athletes are master compensators. You mentioned something a while back, though, that I want to go back to. You mentioned something about assessment of neurotransmitters or mm -hmm. looking at things from a neurotransmitter perspective. And that's one I almost never hear about on the data science side. So would you mind elaborating a little bit on what all you're looking at there? Yeah, absolutely. So I started looking at neurotransmitters quite a while ago. I think it was when I was first started doing my stuff at Tennessee. And um, the, the way that I got around to this is a funny story. Uh, when I was playing football, I had my best friend and I, uh, we worked out and trained together and we did the exact same thing. Um, we literally ate the same food. We did the same amount of workouts. We had the same exact job and so had the same approximate amount of stress, um, and, and environment was pretty typically very close uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. But I saw such a greater impact for myself than I did for him. And I began to kind of question and wonder why that was. And, and the further that I got along into like my coaching um, career, I kind of started to think and see this happen over um, a greater period of time with a bigger number of athletes. And I was like, why is this happening? Why is somebody um, seeing greater impact on a particular training plan than somebody else? You would have different groups of individuals, people that would do fantastic on a particular training plan. You would have guys that would do okay. And then you would actually have people do worse. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. There's got to be something else to it. And so I started looking at um, some neurobiology stuff. Um, some really old test textbooks. And um, I started diving in um, to actually uh, Thibodeau's work with neurotransmitters and um, Poliquin as well. And that started to kind of connect some dots for me. And, and I started um, kind of seeing uh, some different training adaptations that began to start um, kind of analyzing the human being. Um, and I do this now. So I uh, created kind of a, a neurotransmitter um, profile. So for those that don't know, neurotransmitters are just uh, chemicals that are sent from their brain in response to the environment that your body is placed in. And everybody has a different dominance of neurotransmitter. Um, and these neurotransmitters are um, exhibited by personality characteristics. And you can see um, specific personality characteristics um, in, in these neurotransmitter dominances. And I, I put together with Poliquin and Thibodeau's work, some, uh, I guess, a, a neurotransmitter assessment um, that I would start to give to my athletes. And, and this assessment would kind of help me identify the dominance of neurotransmitter that a particular individual would have in the style of training that they are best fit to um, kind of complete and, and um, uh, I guess, put together with their, their training. And I started to see a, a lot more success with these individuals across the board uh, and, and starting to individualize it based on this group or the, this dominance in neurotransmitter. It was really, really cool. And, and I began to see um, <clears throat> these dominances, not only in, in training, but also in skill acquisition and also in, in dieting. And I've been able to kind of combine all of these things together to help uh, hone our athletes to kind of just 
manage their environment as as perfectly as they can. Um, and it's been a, it's been a really really cool process um, to see that kind of unfold. Yeah, definitely. That's really intriguing stuff, and that's something that's not often talked about, especially in the sports science world. And you know, as you were talking, you kind of come to the realization that all of these little things matter when it comes to the topic of elite performance you know and some of them might only make one percent of a difference but that one percent could be the difference of getting to the ball before your opponent or stopping a shot that's going out of goal or something along those lines is you know you're really talking about a game of you know very minute differences causing Mm -hmm. you know drastic changes in the outcome when you get to this high level so all of those little things really do matter um but you know i've also seen a lot of individuals start to dive down this road as it comes to the high school and even the college training as well is, you know, you're seeing a lot more catapult systems. You're seeing a lot more uh, data science, especially in the younger generations. Um, Would you say that most of these numbers and things are as important at that age, or is it more of like, this is the emphasis at the elite level kind of thing? Yeah, and it's a very loaded question. For of course, sure. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I do think that there is a place for it, um, but it is again. I always say that you know, young younger athletes, they're in the sport for the joy of the sport, um, and when you start to add uh, complexity to it, um, it, it takes away some of that joy. Um, and what I've seen. So we have an academy here. And uh, so we have, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kids. And we're doing all of this performance testing. We're doing all of this GPS tracking. And you start to see guys really burn out really quickly just because of the microscope is so finite on their performance and their skill. And if they're not doing things well, there's just so many areas for them to look at and kind of um, get lost in the minutia and, and forget that they love the sport and they're playing the sport because they love it. Um, and so there is a, there's definitely a place for it, but at a younger age, I try to stay away from it more so just because you, you can get lost in all of the, in all of the stuff. And at, at that age, really the number one thing is about skill um, acquisition and skill development and having fun. And, and a lot of times when you look at, you know, data and you look at all of these um, systems that are kind of um, individualizing performance, um, it, it kind of takes away from that, if that makes sense. And again, one of the biggest pieces, you know, to performance is again, like that, that human sensorial, sensorial experience, you know, I think it's, it's important to limit the role that data has and and be connected with the human, as we've been talking about Um, the senses and the emotions and the experiences that the individual athlete, especially at a young age, what they are going through is way more important than any data can tell you. Um, and when you're trying to fine tune, I think that's where the, the data kind of comes more into play. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this, John, is, you know, I've got one of these cool, fancy watches that gives me my heart rate variability, my stress score, my sleep score, all these cool things. 
And, uh, you know, I've noticed sometimes it's pretty spot on where, you know, it says I'm stressed and I, I can certainly tell I'm a little stressed or whatever that way. And other times it'll tell me I slept like crap and I'm not ready to do anything, but I feel wide awake and ready to tackle the day. Yeah. And I, I feel like there can be at times, not always, but at times a mismatch on yeah. data and performance or data and physical readiness to perform. Would you say you see the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually, we have, uh, we have Whoop at Tennessee, every single one of our athletes had it there. And so I did a ton of uh, studying uh, of the information that we received from our athletes there. And you hit it, hit the nail on the head. A lot of the times you are spot on with kind of what metrics are telling you. And then sometimes you're like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm in a red recovery zone and I, I feel pretty good, or I'm in a green recovery zone and I feel like crap. And I've actually seen um quite quite often there's a lag effect um within how your body is responding to its environment and um the environment itself so uh it's just like the body fighting to get to homeostasis everything isn't going to happen right at once like it's not instant there's this uh, feedback loop that has to occur and there's a lag that goes to that especially when you are placed under a lot of stress for a long period of time um, and stress is absolutely necessary um, for you to grow. But uh, I've seen the more chronic stress that you've had over time, the more um, lag effect that there is to your training experience and your training performance. And uh, again, like there's just so many pieces to the, the puzzle and there's so many different things going on because you can talk about the external load you can talk about your sleep you can talk about nutrition the lifestyle that you're living like are you going out and drinking partying all that stuff there's your your cognitive abilities the biological factors that are placed on from birth there's and then there's the environmental factors and, and all of that leads me back to the neurotransmitters as well as how is the individual person interpreting their environment and there's so many questions to be asked and um while a, a wearable is giving you great insight a lot of the time, you're still missing so many pieces of the puzzle. One of the awesome things about Whoop is they have kind of their, their daily wellness kind of, um, I guess, uh, monitoring in their app. And you can have them ask all of these questions. Um, but at some point, it's like you can have all of these questions being asked, but what is truly the issue going on and that's again where you're going down the rabbit hole of everything and and really kind of getting lost in, in in exactly what matters and going back to you know a high school kid you know wanting to wear like a wearable like this or even a professional athlete i always go back to if you're not doing the simple things right it's not going to matter in the in the long term uh, of anything anyway. So if you're not getting eight hours of sleep at night, it's not going to matter. Um, if you're not eating whole foods, it's not going to matter. Um, <clears throat> you know, those types of simple things every single day, like if you're not setting yourself up in a good environment with positive reinforcement and, and success, you're not going to see the adaptation and the proper, um, performance that you want to see regardless if you're wearing a wearable or not everyone seems to think that there's always one thing that they can do like it's like a magic wand thing you know i'll just change yeah. this and then i'm good to go and it's really yeah. as we've been talking it's a culmination of so many different things that add up to impact performance now relating that to soccer since that has been your wheelhouse for a while now how do all these things kind of 
put together to impact the player's soccer performance? Do you notice any, you know, certain trends or I'll dare to use the word correlations between certain data pieces that you look at and performance, you know, in a practice or in a game or that sort of thing? Yeah, I would say right off the bat, the one thing that always stands out, always stands out is our slept at night and skill acquisition and skill technical performance. So we have um, IDPs, um, so individual um, like talent um, plans for our athletes. And uh, we, every time we're, we're going through one of those, like we write down like the scores, for example, we would have a guy across a long ball across the box into like, a mini goal and say he does 25 reps every single day we will take a look at, okay, how many did he make out of the 25, 12 out of 25, 18 out of 25. And then we can take a look at, you know, some of that subjective data and asking how, how long have you slept? Um, how do you feel? Where, what is your mood? And, and you see direct correlations with sleep and skill acquisition and skill um, technical performance. Um, and that's, that's been massive. And even at my time when we were wearing whoop at Tennessee, again, sleep performance up to three nights before a match was a massive predictor of uh, score goal scored against um, and, and the ability and the cognitive um, kind of adaptation and, and skill in defending um, with total hours slept was there's a massive correlation there. Um, and so sleep, I, I believe sleep is in performance um, is the biggest, um, kind of spotlight, um, that you can have. Uh, you, you also see, um, uh, very common, um, just kind of a, acute load. Um, so say match day minus one, very simple things. Um, so we do, we do RSI testing after every match. Um, you know, RSI testing is going to, is going to be really, really low. Um, and our, our cognitive, um, kind of testing and um, things of a psychological uh, nature are also very low on those days, just to kind of get everything rebalanced. You can see the central nervous system and, and, and the psychology of the player kind of collapse on those, on those match day plus ones. Um, and then you, we want to see a gradual increase um, from there. So those are just two things that come right to my head right away that we highlight, we try to highlight every single um um, time that we can with our athletes just highlighting the importance of sleep and then how important sleep is after a match um, and, and having them understand you're going to see performance uh, decrease after large training sessions and that's okay so, so you mean to tell me that increasing workload alone is not always the answer to the problem john yeah, yeah it's I, I, really hard concept to believe right like it is. It, you know um I, I just think about there's some, um, you know, I, I don't know what the correct term is, but there's some coaches that um, seem to be stuck in con the conditioning model. We talked about mm -hmm. that with Eric recently on the podcast as well is, you know, the answer for a lot of baseball coaches is, oh, just go run poles, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, well, you look at a sport like baseball and you probably don't need to run for 30 minutes in baseball. Soccer, yes, yeah. it's a little different because there's a conditioning element, but it, it just seems like there's a great deal of coaching styles that overemphasize the importance of conditioning and very physically demanding practices when yes. they kind of miss some of those lower hanging fruits and 
you know, ultimately, if you stimulate to the point of adaptation and then allow recovery, you're going to see improvement. Like yes. even if you just did a two hour soccer practice, you're still getting activation of AMPK, PGC1 alpha pathways. You're still yes. creating different things that, um, you know, uh, I would say impact mitochondrial biogenesis and various things. So yes. if you allow recovery from that, there's going to be improvement in conditioning. You don't need to redline your soccer player at every practice in order yes. for them to, you know, get benefit. There was an athlete I worked with, a soccer player, uh, who told me his practice one day, uh, they ran seven miles. And that was their practice for the day is run seven miles. Um, and I just kind of scratched my head on that one. Like, where's the yeah, soccer I, in that? Yeah, uh, no. I, I'm by no means the expert here, John. Yeah. I, no, so that that's a great point. Um, and you have to get really, really lucky with the people that you work with for this um, kind of this. I don't want to say, I mean, it is load management, uh, but you have to get really, really lucky with the people that you're around to kind of have them understand the significance of it. Um, and this is what I tell my coaches. I have a conversation with my coaches every year. Um, we're always trying to look at what is the athlete's load capacity. Injury occurs in the tissue when the load exceeds that tissue's capacity. So when we're looking at, you know, the start of our season, we're looking at building out our periodization for the year. It's so important to understand what is the demand of the sport and what is the biggest demand that we are going to see over a seven day period, over a 14 day period and over a month period. So being able to understand what is the capacity that we have to get that to for our athletes um, to be able to withstand the load of the, the sport itself. And so we have to take a deep dive kind of reverse engineer. I know that's another hot word um, going on, but we really <laughs> do have to take a look at the big picture. What is the load capacity that everybody has to meet? And then we have to build out how we are going to get our athletes to that demand in a safe and productive manner. And because it's not going to be zero to a hundred real quick, right? It has to be progressively built out for athletes our athletes to be able to handle that load capacity. And, and so we start every year with that conversation. And if that conversation doesn't happen, you're going to have so many injuries. You're going to have so many problems. Guys are going to come in to be complaining about everything. And it's really important for everybody to be on the same page. And a lot of times that isn't the case. And it's really, really difficult to do, especially in a perform performance setting in professional sport, because there's so many stakeholders. There's so much that's going on. You have guys that have been signed at the age of 13 to go out and, and perform at a high level. And when those guys aren't developing, there's a lot of questions that begin to be asked. And then you have, you know, another guy who's 30 years old who needs a lot of uh, player load management because their capacities, they, they just can't do it anymore, right? And so there's this huge um, kind of balance between the two of, of all of these stakeholders in between everything to be able to manage all of this in, in one kind of one system. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, um, you know, to your point there, um, it, as you were mentioning, there's there's a lot that goes into it and it, it really becomes a recipe for disaster if it's not checked. 
Um, yes. I can't tell you how often I see overuse injuries in the clinic um, that it's like, you know, I, I can't necessarily guarantee it's going to be prevented. We never know a hundred percent, but right. you know, certainly phased workup um, might, might've helped. Um, yes. And as we're talking here, I've realized, you know, we didn't even establish a baseline of how far a soccer player is going to travel in a given game. So, yeah. you know, in, in one of your matches there, how far is one of your players going or how many repeated bouts of, you know, speed change or change of direction or that sort of thing are we looking at? Yeah. So now, now I'm getting really excited. This is, this <laughs> is my favorite type of stuff. Um, so, yeah. So uh, essentially kind of breaking down just a match in general, typically, we'll break it down into positional groups. So we'll have our forwards, we'll have our wingers, midfielders, outside backs, and our central defenders or center backs. And as, this is also going to change dramatically based on the shape that you're playing and, and the way that your coach uh, coaches, their coaching style in particular. So you might have a coach that's super high pressing. You might have a person, a coach that wants to defend in the low low block a little bit more. So there's a whole bunch of tactical elements that go into this as well, but we'll break it down first by position. And then we'll go into the, the tactical elements of the coaching style itself. So typically we'll see on average, most of our guys uh, within the 90 minutes of the game alone, not including warm-up travel anywhere from about 9,000 kilometers to 14 kilometers, which is, you know, five to seven miles um, plus. And so that's just in total distance, quite a bit of load, just, you know, walking around, traveling in 90 minutes. And then we'll look at high speed runnings and there's different bands that you can look at within the high speed running. Um, so typically for a, a male athlete, we're looking at over 19 kilometers an hour. Uh, when I was working with on the, the female side, it was about 17 and a half kilometers an hour. And that's kind of like our, our target zone for high speed running. And typically, depending on position, very position specific, you can have anywhere from, you know, 400 meters of high speed running to you know, I've seen some guys up to like 1600, 1800 meters of high speed running. And then we'll also look at sprint distance again, going to be different between the two. Typically, I've seen on the female side anywhere from 19 kilometers to 21 and a half kilometers. And then the male side, I've seen it, you know, 23 to 25 kilometers. And we're, we're seeing again, you know, some guys, midfielders, sometimes maybe they're getting, you know, 100. And then forwards, wingers, outside backs, you know, 1,000. And so that's where kind of looking at the load capacity um, from a global sense is important. But from an individual perspective, it's even more so important. And then when we're looking at return to play protocols, getting guys back on the field after injury, like it's really, it becomes really important to, again, find that low capacity for them as an individual, because I don't want, I don't want to give a center back who's averaging, you know, 200 meters of sprint distance, you know, 1200 meters of sprint distance. They're just not going to see it. Like, Maybe over an entire week they might see that, but in a match itself, like that's worst case scenario, they're not gonna they're not gonna see that much. So I'm just putting them at more risk for re-injury at that point. Whereas a winger, they're definitely gonna need to see that. So we need to push the envelope a little bit more on the total meters of sprint distance. Um, and then we'll look at also A cells, D cells, 
Um, that's over three meters a second. Um, female side us doing about two and a half meters a second um, on A cells and D cells. And again, that's going to be really game dependent as well. But you could see anywhere from 50 A cells and D cells to 120 A cells and D cells. So a really large gap there as well. Um, and then we could go way, way further down the rabbit hole. But that's that's typically typically the meat and potatoes that we'll look at. Um, and then I'll send those reports to our coaching staff. Right. That's on the speed and running side, not to mention, you know, how many times do you have to fight and win a ball in the air? Oh my gosh, how many yeah. times, um, you know, we, we talked about the field players, but what about the goalkeeper? You know, yeah. give the goalkeeper a little bit of love here. Yeah. You know, they might not necessarily like travel far, but right. you, know, you go from a period of very calm state where the ball's on the other end to almost like a physiological equivalent of panic when the ball oh. is in your own penalty box. Like I can't yes. imagine what's going through the heads of some of these, you know, pro goalkeepers there um, well, you know, just from a physiological taxing load. Uh, that's that, pretty high. I would imagine that that is something that, you know, I, I've had a lot of conversations uh, with goalkeeper coaches and goalkeeper specific performance coaches, especially in uh, like the premier league area over in Europe. And for whatever reason, they they don't seem to like to monitor their goalkeepers. And I think it's it's very difficult to do so. It's very hard for um, GPS units to accurately track kind of dive load and, and dive speed and dive impacts and, and things of that nature. It is really challenging. Luckily, our goalkeeper coach here, Mirza, he is fantastic and he's extremely forward thinking and, and something that we've been able to do is kind of kind of set our own parameters and uh, baselines for our guys. And it's very typical as a goalkeeper too. Um, you train harder than the game is going to be. So almost every single day of the week is going to be harder than the match. But then you start to think about, okay, this, this chronic load, this, this load tolerance of things like we see, uh, we've seen goalkeepers have, you know, more soft tissue, um, more, more soft tissue, like injuries than almost anybody else. And it's like, oh, like everybody starts to question, like, why, why are we seeing all this stuff like quads, groins, hamstrings? Like it's, it's because we're not actually tracking that stuff. And luckily here we have been blessed to work with our amazing goalkeeper coach, who's been very forward thinking in that and been able to mitigate some of that that stress that we have on our keepers, but yeah, it's a, it's a huge conversation to have um, not just with field players, but in that goalkeeper realm as well. Yeah, no, completely agree. And, you know, again, there's so many different factors to consider. And one of the important ones I would say is adjusting recovery time post-match, right? Like, you know, in a sport like baseball, you play 162 games a year. That's tough. Whereas yeah. soccer, it's like what, one or two games a week for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So this this brings me back down to the neurotransmitter thing as well. And something that's uh, been really cool. Uh, I worked with uh, somebody at Tennessee. He, he just graduated a couple of years ago, um, Kenny. And he was, he started, he worked with Cleveland Indian or Guardians now. And um, we, we had a conversation about this as well as the, the taxing load of a baseball season. Um, it's really interesting, but this neurotransmitter, you're, you start to, to see recovery as well based on these neurotransmitters. So, um, for example, somebody who is super dopamine dependent, um, 
they're not going to recover as quickly as somebody who has a, a high level of serotonin and, and GABA. So these type of athletes are two ends of the spectrum. So this dopamine dependent athlete, these are the super high intensity athletes. You would think um, in, in a weightlifting perspective to make it simple, you think of these guys as the, the really big power lifters, um, Olympic weightlifters who are doing, you know, eight sets of, you know, one to three, four reps. Right. And then this opposite side, these are, these are the people that are going out on long runs every single day of the week. You know, we see, you know, they, they're tracking over 25 miles of running every single week and they can come back to it every single, every single day where this, type one, this, uh, dopamine dominant athlete they they need a ton of time to recover, right? They need, they're, they're maybe doing four lifts a week or something like that. Three lifts a week. They're resting three minutes in between each set because they need that recovery. And you start to see it in these athletes that you're coaching as well. And like, if you push these, um, dopamine athletes too hard, then, they start to break down and I can push these serotonin athletes all day because they they like the load. It's, it's almost calming to them. And so you start to see these di individual differences based on these neurotransmitter dominance as well. And, and the, the loads that they can handle. And then you see sports, different types of athletes kind of tend to gravitate towards particular sports that they are dominant and there, there's a cluster of dominance of neurotransmitters. And so for, for example, I see in soccer, a lot of the, the type three, I call them uh, serotonin dominant neurotransmitters because there's so much running, there's so much um, volume that's involved with it. Was, while in something like football, you're going to see the more dopamine dominant, acetylcholine dominant um, athletes in that. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, I can't help but wonder too, how many other external factors kind of like we were talking about before, play into that because dopamine is primarily a reward neurotransmitter. Yeah. And there's a lot of things nowadays that give us instant gratification and instant mm -hmm. rewards. So I can't help but wonder, you know, how some of these other factors or even just overall development play into oh. the type of neurotransmitter preference uh, for an athlete. Yes. Yes. And then that, that goes back to like learning styles um, and the way that people learn and, and all of this stuff like you see, and now, and now so more than ever, like how people are being raised is, is going to influence everything about their neurotransmitter dominance and development as well. And can see that start to occur on, you know, their, their environment that they were placed in when they grew up and, I think that's why in soccer, like having these academies, in-house academies are starting to become so popular because you can start to manipulate and transform the lives of these young athletes at such an early age. And you can kind of uh, kind of manipulate um, the response that you want to see to a greater extent. So, John, you know, we've been talking about all these different performance considerations uh, and, you know, all of that is well and good for game day, which is a single game. But. What happens when you drag that out over the course of, you know, a long season? Because, you know, in the MLS, you guys don't just play like one or two games. Like it's a multiple month long season. And that's true with almost every sport anymore is I feel like sports are really becoming a year round commitment. 
So how do you take all these performance considerations, performance metrics and data and apply that into, you know, a season long kind of uh, game and, you know, sport demand for lack of a better way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. And we touched on this a little bit um, before, but the reverse engineering or so, so have you uh, is particularly important. So again, taking a look at the worst case scenario that you're going to see within a season and then reverse engineering to basically getting to that point um, in, in that particular part of the season. And what you want to do is, you know, basically build up in waves um, the intensities, the volumes, the high speed runnings to get to that end product um, that is worst case scenario. And what's really kind of important here is it's not just a linear progression. We need to have ebbs and flows. So we, we talk about, I call it wave periodization. You can call it undulating periodization. Um, but it's the same thing that that's in the strength and conditioning realm within, you know, manipulating your sets and reps and, and intensities there. You're just doing the same thing from kind of an external load profile. Um, but that's where that, that performance profiling comes into such a big demand as well, because you're looking at several different positions at a time, um, several different demands of the sport. And, and, you know, there's so many different considerations to think of when you're trying to get to um, that, that end point and getting everybody from point A to point B to point C is really important. You can't skip what's in the middle of everything. And I think a lot of times that's missed within performance periodization within um, field sports, particularly. Um, another thing that we do um, particularly is I look at acute to chronic ratios. And I know that there's a lot of, uh, questions about the reliability and validity of acute to chronic uh, workloads. And I've definitely seen that way that I counter that is working on an exponentially weighted acute to chronic uh, workload. Um, and essentially what that is looking at is say you're looking at a 21 day uh, chronic workload. Day one would be the he most heavily weighted to where day 21 would be the le least heavily weighted. Um, so you just go on an exponential scale, um, weighting each day across the 21 day um, surface that we're kind of looking at, um, and then dividing it again by, by the acute. So seven day, for example, what we would do that first day would have the highest exponentially weighted um, product where that seven day would have the least. And that has shown um, a little bit more consistency um, in, in the things that we're looking at. Um, and then we're able to kind of break that down by player, by position, by their norms as well. And so we can kind of set a guideline, basically a standard deviation above, standard deviation below of what they're doing on an, any given day in any given week within you know, large period of data. And it allows us to kind of interpret whether days are hard, whether they're easy, um, and where athletes need to be at in terms of their performance plan. Now, do you tend to see more of a trend in that data based on position, kind of like you were mentioning there on the positional specificity, you know, would you typically see more stress and strain in say the midfielders who are running up and down a lot more, or would you see more of that in the attacking population that tends to have more of a 
short sprint to the ball and, you know, chasing a through ball and that sort of thing? Or is there any kind of trend or just general correlation to that data, I would say, as far as the position goes and what you see long term? Yeah. So the way that we break down everything within our season, actually, um, kind of going a little off topic here, I'll, I'll bring it back full circle. Um, but you're absolutely going to see trends within particular positions based on the days that you're having, based on where you're at in the season, based on the opponents that you're playing, et cetera. So the way that we uh, build our periodization out from week to week basis is uh, it's called tactical periodization. And what you're looking at there is basically different categories of physical traits that we're trying to capture within a training session um, that align with you know, the, the tactical side of the sport of soccer itself. So the way that we'll look at it is we want kind of like a re-entry day. Um, a re-entry day is basically just bridging the gap from having an off day, having a heavy day prior to kind of get our body functioning again, getting our brain to connect um, with the movements that we're, that we're going through, getting through a kinetic sense and, and, and just kind of getting our legs going, blood, blood flowing again. And then we'll have a um, kind of a strength day and this would match what you're kind of thinking in the gym like it's going to be more uh, muscular um, or excuse me mechanical in demand um, so there's going to be a lot of change of direction tight spaces um, excels decels things of that nature so when we're looking at a strength day the field spaces are smaller um, the the session the total duration is a little bit lower and then there's just a, a little bit more intensity of that change of direction, A cell, D cell work. And then we have what's called an endurance day, and that's going to be closer to match demand. So this is going to be probably our biggest day of the week. And that's going to kind of encompass a little bit of everything. It's going to have more muscular load because the spaces are going to be a little bit higher. So we're going to have a little bit more demand of high-speed running, sprint distance, because those spaces are so much bigger. And then we're going to be playing for longer periods of time to allow us to kind of get more game-like exposure um, on our bodies. Um, and then we're going to have the next one is a speed day. Um, and this is typically our match day minus one type of day. So the, the mental processing is super quick. The change of direction, tight spaces, um, we want to see some excels, decels, so a little bit of high speed running so that that speed day is kind of encompassing everything, but with really, really short duration. And then we're going to have match demands and that's going to be like our game. And that obviously is going to be 100 percent of everything going on um, within a, a typical game for our guys. And within that periodization, you're going to see different days elicit different demands from different positions. So on a re-entry day where we really want to keep everybody pretty low on everything because, because again, we're just trying to get, you know, our proprioception back and get uh, muscle mechanic, mechanical things uh, working properly. But then that strength day, we're going to see like our central midfielders and our, our center defensive players have a, have a, not a huge spike, but a pretty large spike within their A cell, D cell, um, acceleration load, um, and player load in general. So, whereas our wide players aren't really going to see as much of that just because there's not as much space for them to move. Um, so, that demand for our wide players and our attacking players is a little bit less because they're just kind of working on um, kind of positional 
uh, awareness within within the practice structure. And then we'll go into that that endurance day. We're going to see a lot less demand from those central midfielder center defenders, way more from those wingers, forwards, outside backs, because there is so much more space and then they're allowed to kind of get moving a, a little bit more. Um, so those demands are going to be completely you know, different based on the type of day that we're having, the type of plan structure. Because again, within those those particular um, days, we could have an endurance day where our field spaces are a little bit bigger, um, but we're going to have maybe different types of zones laid out to where like our wingers have to get into this into the wide space, or our wingers have to get into the final third. And that's going to elicit even more demand. So we can kind of play and tweak with what we are actually doing um, in our training sessions to kind of manipulate a, a greater physical capacity of the players that we're looking for. And we'll sit down as a staff and we'll talk about those things. And we'll talk about like, hey, somebody <clears throat> good to do this type of session. Um, maybe they have, they're just in a return to play protocol. They just did some partial minutes the week before. They've had a really high, you know, high speed running load or a really high sprint distance load looking out of the acute to chronic. Maybe they might be inflamed in one of the areas. There might be a yellow or red flag that we're looking at. They might be above the standard deviation. And it's like, okay, these guys are coming back. This is the practice session. Maybe we make this guy a neutral player instead of having him outside on the wing because it is going to put him at a little bit more risk. And so having those considerations to help manage athletes through the entirety of the season becomes really, really important over the long haul of a season. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, you hit so many great points as you were talking there, Johnny, from, you know, the importance of matching what you're doing from a conditioning standpoint to the specific position, but also to the specific workload that they're facing during the season. Yep. And one of the things that I really want to emphasize that I'll say you didn't point it out directly, but you brought it up in a indirect way is you never once said, oh, you know, we just tell them to go out there and run for 30 minutes or 40 minutes, or, you know, we just go have them run 50, 60 hills and call it a day. Right. Um, because that seems to be a common theme I notice in a lot of sports and other places, high school, whatever, where their conditioning is, okay, go run, and we'll see you mm -hmm. five miles later. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily hit the specificity that's needed in soccer. That right. doesn't hit the A cell, D cell. And I know we discussed that quite a bit earlier on just the number of changes of directions and the number of change of paces that occur during a game. And, you know, thankfully you have all that data, but even if you don't have all that data at your disposal, you know, maybe you're at a high school or a club team or whatever, if you don't have that, just go off of what we assume to be the norms mm -hmm. because that assumption is going to be far better than you just saying, Hey, go run for an hour and call it conditioning because unfortunately that's not doing any favors for anyone. Right. And ultimately the more you fatigue someone with just go run, uh, the less likely they are to perform at the level that you want them to, at right. least from my own experience. Yes. And so that's where we start to talk about training monotony. Yep. Um, and then, that's why it's so important that we have this undulation in that periodization. We have the different styles of training days so that training monotony doesn't remain constant because that's when we're, when we see high training loads, chronic training loads, and we see training monotony, that's where that tissue resiliency is really going to falter and, and be reduced. And you're going to see that injury 
uh, rate spike. So that training monotony is a massive piece of looking at injury prevention and performance periodization, because at the end of the day, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, your, your body's going to be able to handle it for, you know, two to three weeks. Typically you'll start to see drop off and decrease in performance and an increase in injury rates around that fourth week mark. The body just can't handle it after, you know, that 21 to 24 day mark. And so having that, the, the idea of, Hey, we need to have different zones of intensities for particular days. And he had a different zones of intensities and volume is really, really important. So, you know, within that structure that we're talking about, we have a strength day, we have an endurance day, we have a speed day, we have a, a re-entry day, and then we have a match day. Typically, so that re-entry day is low volume, low intensity. The strength day is moderate intensities, low volume. Endurance is um, high volumes, low to medium intensities. Speed days are high intensity, low volume. So we're undulating the intensities and the volumes throughout the entire week. And then we're getting to the point where match day is high intensity and then high volume. And then we're just kind of letting them recover, get, get back in the drawer. I always say <clears throat> the analogy that I use is it's silverware. You're using silverware all week. You put, you put them through the, the biggest meal of, of the week, you wash everything and then you, you kind of tuck them in into the drawer and then you get ready to use them again. So it's like, can we, can we fine tune the silverware? Can we start cleaning it up, sharpening the knives throughout the week? And then when we have our match day, we're using all of our utensils and then we get them back, we get them washed, cleaned out, we tuck them away and then we, we restart the process. So it's all of this undulation um, and, and wave-like um, process that, that allows us to get the most out of our athletes um, when we are talking about a, a very long season. Yeah, no, I love that analogy and I love that breakdown there, John, is, you know, that's that's ultimately what we try to do because... Well, training and practice is essential and important. It, it doesn't win the, you know, it doesn't change your points set in the scoreboard. The wins change your points. Yeah. So, you know, you might have a phenomenal practice, but then go into game day smoked. Yeah. And yep. that, that becomes a whole problem in itself, right? If you have the best team on paper, but you can't win a game because everyone's mentally and physically just out of it on game day, yep. then that's a whole nother discussion. Um, and I, I'm assuming we probably don't have time to go there. Um, I mean, we've kind of discussed everything from just what data you collect to what your typical day at Real Salt Lake looks like to how you address that data or take that data and apply it into the day-to-day, -day, into the season long, and based on various positions. Do you have anything else that you feel like we missed or anything else you feel like we really want to discuss on? Um, I mean – you brought the only thing that I can think of is you brought up like the, the mental component of it and talk about like total training load. And I think one of the big things that everybody needs to understand when you are looking at training and you are looking at becoming better, and this is from a peak performance aspect, this is from youth performance and, and building yourself up and, and becoming a better overall player, athlete, whatever it is you touched on the, the mental aspect of it and, and the mental monotony and the kind of grind that you could 
I guess, call the process of everything. It is so, so important to consider the mind and all of this. Again, we've talked about and touched just how important like the individual aspect, um, the individual perception of, you know, training of the sport, having fun and all of that thing, all of that stuff. If you sit there and you think, oh, I have to train all the time, all the time. Like we see it all the time in our academy. It's train, 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 train. And then we have a massive kind of layoff of guys that are just like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. It's so important to realize that the mental aspect of it is massive. So it's not always about train, 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 train. Yes, our body is resilient and we can handle and adapt to a lot of things, but particularly um, in high performance and, and youth performance, it's so important to make sure that you're having fun with it and and reducing the mental stress as much as you can. Because at the end of the day, the mind is what's going to ultimately make or break what you are able to accomplish. Your body is going to be able to adapt, but your mind has to, has to be there to help influence what your body does. And if you're not there, it's just not going to happen. So takeaway for me at the end of the day, the mind is, is more important than anything else and, and helping kids, helping athletes realize, you know, I don't need to do, you know, a hundred miles an hour all the time to help them see long-term athletic development is, is massive in my eyes. Yeah. I cannot echo that point enough. Johnny is, you know, plain and simple. You hit the nail on the head. There's so many times and instances I can think of where athletes are very gifted physically. And I mean, you see it in the pros all the time, right? Yeah. You know, they, they wouldn't be good if they, they, they wouldn't make it to the pros unless they were good, you know, world-class best of the best. Right. And yet for some reason they still go in slumps at times. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, the, the best soccer players still have stretches where they don't score any goals. Yep. The best baseball players still have stretches where they strike out how many times, right? right. It happens. Yep. Uh, and that is certainly a big mental element. And I think as you know, we were talking today, while the data stuff is very cool and exciting and fun, and while training is very fun and exciting and all that, you know, there's certainly a mental element to all of that as well. As we talked yep. on earlier, you can't just base your entire day on you know your recovery score your sleep score alone yeah. from the wearable you know you have to kind of take a step back and assess how you're feeling that day because that number may or may not match how you're feeling uh by, by the same token um you know on more of the injury and performance side a lot of athletes i've seen recovering from injury face a lot of unique mental challenges because they feel separate from their sport they feel separate from their team in the yeah. sense that they're not able to do what they usually did. And you just ripped all aspect of control from their life with the fact that, you know, maybe they're on crutches now or, you know, just post-op surgery, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and ultimately finding ways to give them back control uh, should be an essential focus for us. That yeah. was something I um, recently discussed with Dr. Uh, T on the podcast is just the overall locus in, of control yes. and the ability to give athletes control uh, whether that be in rehab or human performance or whatever, and how that alone can really make a difference on someone's mental well-being, but also their performance. Yeah, and on on that that note, um, I've seen I've seen so many athletes, you know, have to step away from the sport after an injury, um, and it's absolutely it's it's gut wrenching, heart wrenching for those guys because. 
you know, they still want to do it and, but they feel so taken away from, from their sport. So taken away from their team and they go into dark, dark spaces and it it's, it's crushing to see that happen. Um, I don't know if this is on a sports science kind of note, but something that we really like to do is just try and try and get them involved as much as possible, whether that's, um, you know, watching film, um, having conversation with, you know, technical coaches. Um, but something that we really think is cool here is, you know, we just try and incorporate the sport of soccer as much as we can. So if we're on a bike, we'll have a guy be pedaling and say they're watching some film or say they're watching a game on the TV, pick out a player that they like or the position that they play and pedal on the bike like the player is reacting in the game. So if they go on a full sprint, they're sprinting. If they start to jog, it's a slow cycle. If they walk, it's even slower. Change of direction, big burst, relax, big burst, relax. So trying to implement, you know, the mind into the sport while we are doing rehab stuff, while we are doing return to play things has been absolutely massive in keeping our guys engaged as well. Yeah, definitely. I I love that approach and I love that incorporation into the process there, John. That's a great point. For people who want to find out more about you or, you know, maybe they want to check out Fab Performance, where can they find you at? Yeah, so I have uh, an Instagram, Performance Science Network, um, or John. it's under Johnny Fabrizius as well. And then I also do have Fab Performance 1. Um, that is uh, our website that we have online. Um, so that's fabperformance1.com. And uh, we have a lot of um, kind of our sports science stuff going up on there. A lot of our uh, programming things, uh, stuff that we like to talk about. Absolutely check that out. We'd, ha- we'd be more than uh, happy to talk with you guys and discuss any questions that you might have. Awesome. We will link to all of that in the description below too. So if you didn't quite catch that, you can just click there. John, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time and for all the information that you shared with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.